Hello and welcome to the Rare Disease Cell and Gene Therapy Weekly Roundup. I'm your host, Joanna Fernandez. This week, we are podcasting from the World Orphan Drug Congress in Washington, D.C. As such, please forgive the variable sound quality as we are recording live at the event to give you the most up-to-date information and news. First, producer Parna Krishnan spoke to Andre Chalika, chairman and CEO of Selectis, about his thoughts on what the key challenges are in bringing a cell therapy product to market and the ethical issues surrounding it. Thank you for joining us today. Um, could you let us know a little bit about yourself and your work at Selectis? Hello, my name is André Chulika. I'm the chairman and CEO of Selectis. I'm a scientist by training and I've been uh, doing gene editing for the past 30 years of my life, more than 30, 31 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, I started in 1988 and I founded the company on the concept of trying to bring gene editing into uh, therapy and to try to cure diseases using this uh, interesting technology. And uh, Selectus has been essentially focusing on uh, oncology, essentially liquid tumors uh, using T cells or CAR T cells. So T cells that have been loaded with the chimeric antigen receptor that will find the cancer cells and that would be gene edited to cure a series of different types of malignancies going from acute lymphoblastic leukemia to acute myeloid leukemia up to multiple myeloma. What would you say are the key challenges for bringing a product from university lab right up to commercialization? Given that you've done it, what, what should new entrepreneurs look out for? Well, the big, big challenge behind this is that everything that is done in academic settings is usually extremely difficult to reproduce in an industrial setting. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of data that has been published on this and the reproducibility rate is close to 5%. And even though there is like a big bunch of experiments that are not even reproducible from A to Z Mm -hmm. uh, in there. So when you can find something on a bench in an academic lab and converting this into an industrial product, the big challenge is process development and the robustness of the experiment that happened in the test tube in the lab that can be converted into an industrialized full QC process for commercial purposes. And that's a huge challenge. What do you see as the future of gene editing? Well, ten years from now. Well, ten years from now, it's extremely difficult to make predictions mm-hmm. because each time I've been doing predictions, I was wrong. I remember in 1990, I just published my first paper and was sequencing two genes in yeast, and that took us like a year to sequence these two genes and publish them in Embo Journal. And I was very proud of myself, and I had two friends that asked me. Andre, when do you think that the human genome is going to be sequenced? I said, oh, this is probably 2050, 2060 at best. And I was thinking with the tools of 1990, the genome, human genome was sequenced like 10 years later. It costs 30, like 10 billion, like 3 billion dollars. And I can sequence a genome in like a couple of hours for 100 bucks. So making predictions in this space that goes at the super high speed is difficult but I can predict few things gene editing is going not going to change in 100 years from now we're going to continue to edit genes 
with which kind of technology is going to be very difficult to say because when you have a technology today we use Talon, there's CRISPR, there's Zinc Fingers, there's Talon, Megatals, etc. When you speak about the technology, its technology is already obsolete at the time are you using this technology and technology is meant to become obsolete at the time. So 10 years is very far, it's like an eternity from now. However, what we're going to bring in therapy is not only, for example, gene knockouts, but gene repair, gene insertion, gene replacement, and slightly in the two, three, four, five years that are going to evolve, synthetic biology is going to invade therapies with cells that are going to be fully programmed up to the time, probably in 10 years, will come to a full genome design because people are starting to design genomes on computers. Given all these advancements, clearly there would be questions, there would be some concerns, especially in terms of ethics and the use of these new technologies. And what are your views in terms of uh, where uh, this debate is going? What is wow. your, your, your position? Wow, that's a tough question because ethics, I'm not an ethician. Okay, yeah. But definitely it's a big question around gene editing because you're touching the source of life. DNA and tweaking DNA is uh, something that does matter. Uh, well, currently the consensus is you can do somatic gene editing, but you don't touch the germline. You don't touch fertilized embryos. Everything that can be transmitted, no ways this is going to be touched. However, there are like people that are thinking about this, and I very much like the fact that we should at least know how to use gene editing into somatic cell lines that cannot be transmitted in order to know exactly the efficacy and especially the safety before we can move forward. But if you would like to project yourself over a long period of time, I'm not talking about like five, 10 years now, I'm speaking about 100, 200, 300 years from now, and with the potential of these type of technology, if you can potentially cure any type of genetic disease using genetic fix any kind of genes then you have another ethical problem that comes up if you only do somatic gene editing it means you're going to pile up mutations in the germline while you're fixing somatic cells so you can have in 200 years people that have in their somatic germline maybe 10 20 50 mutations that are not viable as a human at all, while their somatic cells are totally fixed by gene therapy. And the human species will be totally corrupted, and you have a total disconnect between what is encoded in the germline that will be not untouched, so full of mutation that will accumulate because you don't have a Darwinian pressure selection on humans, while their body will be totally fixed. So that's another ethical question, and I think that we're far from solving this. So my recommendation is we should not rush on taking hard stance on the ethics in this space, because with the evolving technologies and the power of these technologies, then decisions should be taken over time, I mean in the coming decades. Do you think uh, regulators or uh, world bodies are being a bit short-sighted? in their decision-making? They're not short-sighted. Actually, they're taking excessive actions sometimes, and they have to 
like wind back their decision and restart again. And nothing have ever stopped technology in the past. <clears throat> That's not going to happen today, especially if you have technology that can save lives and can make lives of people way better than what it is today. And when you're using these very powerful technologies that have an ethical option for the patient, it means the patient is going to live better. A patient that has sickle cell anemia or beta thalassemia or like an immune severe combined immunodeficiency or for example, outport disease, etc. You cannot say, oh, we're not going to fix this because potentially the germline is going to be totally corrupted in 100 years from now. So the decisions shouldn't be rushed and we're rushing. And I don't say it's, it's like uh, quickly taken or li like uh, the decision has been taken lightly, but I think we need to give the time to time in, or to, in order to take these type of decision. And then we will have a better view on this space and will take wiser decision and the ability to take back our decisions afterwards. Do you think a larger debate should take place? Yes, and this debate should not be confined only to politicians and scientists. It should be an open debate in the public. Everyone working the streets, or lame people, should be able to grab the subject and have their opinion and their say on this. It's a total society problem and it should be taken by everyone because it's happening now. Now, like, there is a huge uh, burst in gene therapy in general, and so it's happening. And it's going to impact every one of us. Everyone could be impacted potentially by undiagnosed potential genetic defects that uh, we all have. And uh, th there is a strong need for people to know exactly what's going on. Actually, that, that was my last question. As a patient, I mean, this is, this is one of the most exciting eras because mm. you are... You have access to potentially life-changing curative therapies uh, that is on the horizon. So there's a lot to look forward to. But there's also a um, big gap in information, a uh, big gap in terms of understanding. What can pharma companies, governments, etc. do to bridge that gap, to bring the patient again at the center of all of this revolution that's going on? I think the effort should be made on giving uh, access to this knowledge. Finally, it's not that much complicated to understand. Everyone can understand this. So the way to communicate is important to make the things simple so everyone could understand what is going on. When you start talking about people, tell them gene therapy or DNA, they, they f their, their brain freezes. So we have to unlock the access to science because it's simple science. And it's easy to access this type of science. It's easy to understand. You have a bug in your genome, we're going to fix this bug, easy to understand. And people should not freeze whenever we start talking about science. And that's an effort that should be done on the government side, but also on the company side, on the academic side also. And the journalist should grab the subject and try to bring in bring it to the people as simple as possible and give it an access to everyone so everyone can make his decision. Andre, many thanks. Well, thank you so much. And now, Sophie Schmitz, managing partner, discussing the workings of MOCA, or Mechanism of Coordinated Access to Orphan Medicinal Products with Anna Bucic, a unique organization dedicated to supporting commercialization of orphan drugs. 
Hello, I am here at the WODC in Washington and I am here with Anna Bucic from Mocha. Anna, tell us a little bit about yourself and your role at Mocha. It's actually quite simple. If a company has an orphan medicinal product and is interested in a multi-stakeholder collaboration to anticipate and try to solve uh, upstream access problems with an orphan product, they can contact Mocha. And can maybe you could help me understand a little bit about Mocha itself in terms of what, what's your ultimate aim, what's your ultimate mission? The ultimate mission is to improve access for patients. If you have a new pharmaceutical product, there can be different impediments to access. This can be because of delivery issues with the product. This can be because payers don't understand the value of the product. This can be because companies haven't done their homework in documenting the value of the product. And all these problems can be discussed at MOCA, hopefully to find solutions to them. Sounds like a really valuable exercise. How many times do you actually have meetings, MOCA meetings, each year? Well, we have five meetings a year. Mm -hmm. They are on top of other meetings with payers, usually in Brussels, but sometimes in other cities in Europe. And you can find the meeting dates at the websites of the MEDEV committee. And we'll put all of these uh, web links on the podcast so that everybody can see where they are. Easy access to them. What kind of a, would be a typical company that would use Mocha that would, would come to you for, for help and advice? Well, uh, we're really focused on, on small and medium enterprises. So a company like that would be a typical company. Mm -hmm. And if they have an orphan product, ideally phase two, before their pivotal trial is being finalized, so they can obtain input from patients and payers on what's important to them. Mm -hmm. And that's really the uniqueness of MOCA because we have patients involved in, in, in these discussions at every stage of the product. How do you make sure that you have the right patients involved in terms of the, the nationality of the patient? Obviously the disease is, is incredibly important. So how do you organize that? Well, that's done by your orders because they have an incredible infrastructure. They have networks to all the patient organizations in all of Europe. So uh, when a company contacts MOCA, then they choose uh, the patient groups to participate in the process. Now, I, I realize it's confidential, the process, and you can't give me any names of companies or, or drugs, but could you maybe explain a little bit about or give some examples of when uh, a situation has worked particularly well with Mocha, a company or, or a drug where it's worked particularly well? It's worked particularly well when the company was willing to listen to the input that they got from Mocha. And of course, payers would communicate that they think that the product might be priced too high. Mm -hmm. uh, but then uh, the even if the company doesn't take this to heart in the sense that it literally lowers the list price, they would be willing to negotiate with uh, different countries and to find a solution to getting the products to the patients. Now, do I understand right that this is a free service? It's currently free of charge, yes. Wow, and that's, it sounds like an amazing amount of value for a free of charge service. 
it's free of charge because there is actually no way that a, a group composed of uh, patients and payer organizations can accept money from a pharmaceutical sure, company yep, yep. on the one hand. And on the other hand, the cost for companies is simply uh, being uh, prepared to discuss issues about the pricing of the product, even mm -hmm. if it's not the, the euro and cent price itself. But they have to uh, they have to be prepared to discuss pricing issues, to discuss issues about how price relates to value of a product, and to listen to payers' input. Yeah, all critical issues at the moment, and I'm sure will continue to be uh, critical issues as we move forward into the future. Just last question: What do you see as the future of Mocha? Where do you see the organisation going and evolving? Well, uh, we're still working on optimizing our outreach to small uh, outreach to small and medium enterprises, and what we're currently intensively working on is coordinating all these initiatives that are going around that are happening in Europe, uh, with, for example, like EMA's Prime Initiative, uh, coordinating with UNETA, coordinating with the regional uh, cooperations like Beneluxa. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Sounds like you've, uh, you're going to be quite busy. I hope so. <laughs> Anna Vucic, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. And that's it for this week. Next week, we will be featuring more guests from the World Orphan Drug Congress. So stay tuned. For more news and analysis, please go to our website, www.partnersforaccess.com. Subscribe to our podcast and do share your thoughts in the comment section. See you next week.